Well, hey, it's so good to see all of you here and online. It's good to have you. You know, we've been going through a series on the book of Mark, and we're at the last few chapters, the last week of Jesus. He's having a conversation with uh, religious leaders, and we get to this really critical passage, this conversation. And, you know, as I was thinking, I'd love to get someone to speak on it um, that will bring this truth afresh. And, and I, I thought that our speaker for today, Dr. Eric Tanis, would be the perfect person to speak on this particular issue. Uh, not only is he the department chair of theology at Talbot School of Theology and Biola University, uh, he also is the teaching pastor at EV Free, um, Grace EV Free of uh, La Mirada, but he's written on this particular issue. He's also written many other works. He's a, a leader in the evangelical circle, but more than anything, he, he loves his wife and he loves his kids, and I know that. Um, and Dr. Tanis has been here a number of times, in, in fact, and he's a, just a friend of Living Hope, someone whom I trust, someone whom I trust, loves the Lord, and he's going to speak on it in a fresh way. I'm looking forward to uh, hearing him again, actually. Hey, so Living Hope, would you welcome Dr. Eric Tanis? Thank you, Pastor Steve. It's so good to be with you all again. It's true. I feel like I'm home. I love that phrase that I've seen around that this, this is a place that feels like home to me. I've been here plenty of times. I've gotten to know Pastor Steve and some of the other leaders, and it's so good to see how God's clearly working here, the integrity with which this ministry is happening. I'm so grateful. And to be part of this series in Mark, what an amazing piece of literature is the book of Mark. It's exciting. He loves the word immediately. Action moves. It's vivid. It's just a great uh, book of the Bible. And I love the section that you're in right now in the, the way the sermons have been leading you to this point. Jesus has been establishing his authority throughout the book of Mark. And clearly in these preceding passages, Jesus is showing that he comes with divine authority. He's God himself as he interprets the scriptures. As religious leaders come along and because of their jealousy and their envy and because they don't like the influence Jesus is gaining, they want to challenge him and back him into a corner and get him in trouble. And they're asking him theological questions and political questions, trying to take him down. And over and over again, like an MMA fighter, but with the word of God, he is winning every one of these battles and putting people in their place, if you will, in, in light of the scripture's teaching. And this morning, we come to somewhat of an amazing conclusion on these battles he's been having with these people trying to take him out. And it's bringing us now to the great commandment, an amazing passage that in many ways summarizes our lives as Christians. And it's found in Mark chapter 12. I want to read this passage and then draw some vital conclusions from it. Jesus, once again, is challenged, this time, though, by a leader who actually is interested in learning. And here's how it goes. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. Help us, Lord, as we go to your word. Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. 
and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This was a common question in this covenant context, this old covenant context for us. These religious leaders were concerned about all the law. This isn't a question that's trying to avoid some laws, but certainly trying to put them in order of priority. And so he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They will know you are Christians by your t-shirts. That's not what it says. It doesn't say they will know you're Christians by your bumper stickers or your morality, that you don't smoke or drink alcohol. They won't know you by your political affiliations. No, Jesus says they will know you by your love, starting with your love for one another. The distinctive characteristic of the Christian is love. And this brings it out very clearly. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this great commandment, which needs to go hand in hand with the great commission to make disciples of all nations, that must be undergirded by our lives of love, starting with our loves for one, love for one another, and then for our neighbor, and then even for our enemy, and most certainly for people among the nations. Jesus, again, establishing his authority, his divine authority, giving devastating answers from the scriptures, giving us the reason for the hope that's within us. It's not just a testimony. It's arguing from the scriptures Jesus models for us. But here we come this morning to the greatest commandment. And if you take this seriously, if you heard what was just said, you will find this, as I do, a staggering command that could be crushing if we didn't depend on God to enable us to fulfill this command. When I think honestly of the posture of my heart every day of my life, I've been walking with Jesus as long as I can remember. I turned 57 in a couple of weeks. I've been at this Christian thing a long time. But honestly, when I read the command to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength, and love my neighbor as myself, often feel like quitting. Honestly, I, 
I just want to wave the white flag of surrender at any ability to obey this command. Which means we need God. We need to have a desperate dependence on God to fulfill this command. Because when I'm honest with my heart and with the state of my soul, I realize that I am intensely self-preserving and self-exalting and self-enhancing and self-esteeming and self-advancing. I boot up self-absorbed. And we live in a culture that encourages that. Not just in sports, which is just sickeningly self-exalting these days, and the entertainment industry, but social media is so consumed with image and with self. And when we think about somehow becoming so counter to our natural instincts and all the encouragement of our culture, it could crush us to think about taking this command seriously. But God commands it, and God does what he always does. He always gives blessing and grace and favor before he even commands. I mean, think about the great commandment in the very beginning of the Bible, to be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue. And it says before he commands Adam and Eve with that creation mandate, what does it say? And he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and rule over and subdue and fill the earth. He always blesses. He always gives grace that in a way that precedes the command. And we need to take this command wonderfully seriously because we take God's enabling grace and favor to be able to do it so seriously. But this command is stunning. It's a commandment centered on relationships. It's a commandment that takes God and his ways seriously. You know, this is not just a question that a scribe should ask in a Jewish context. This is a question we should all ask. Lord, what are your ways? What are your commands? What does it mean to walk in faithfulness before you? I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. A plea for biblical precision. And one of the chapters... I think we should probably stop saying a phrase I often hear among Christians, and it's this, Christianity's not a religion. It's a relationship. Now there's profound truth to that statement because Christianity is centrally relationship. That's what this passage is saying. It's saying all the commands, all the laws, all the ways of God boil down to our relationship of love with God and with other people. That's what it all boils down to. But to disconnect that from God's clear commands of how he calls us to live in Scripture is to really miss the context of the Christian life. Oh, the Christian life is fundamentally about relationship. It is. But every good relationship is maintained by regular religious practice. Whether it's, I see there's a panel on dating. I'm very intrigued by that. I'm, I'm thinking of maybe showing up myself. Not because I'm interested in dating, except dating my wife, which I do regularly as, as much as I'm, well, I, I, need to, I need to take Don out this week. I was just convicted of that. Well, we're going on a date. So, but, but if, if you're dating, if you're married, if you have any kind of relationship, you need to maintain that relationship with regular religious practice. 
Oh, Christianity is not empty religion, but it's most certainly religion. It's customs, it's habits, it's things we do. You're being religious by being here right now instead of sleeping. Or watching your favorite sporting event or doing yard work. You're here because you realize your relationship with God and with other Christians depends on you regularly attending services like this. It's an extreme overstatement to say Christianity is not a religion. It is. All sorts of religious practice maintains this relationship. But it is most certainly, centrally, a relationship of love. It's a relationship we have with God first and foremost, grounded in who God is. And we're told to love God with all we are and all we have. It's a comprehensive thing. I don't think heart, soul, mind, and strength in this passage is intended to make these careful delineations between these component parts of who we are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. I think the point of piling these up, these descriptions of these component parts of who we are, is to say to us, all you are and all you have. Everything, it's a comprehensive statement. It's an exhaustive statement. There's no fraction of who you are that isn't to be in devotion to God. Body, soul, mind, strength, intellect, sense of humor, resources of any kind, relational capabilities, artistic capabilities, musical capabilities as we saw in service to God this morning in these musicians. Whatever it is we have given by God is for God, for relationship with him. We are to love God according to who he is. And I think it's so important that we see that this passage, a lot of people don't realize that the great commandment is connected to what's called the Shema. The Shema, the, the, the central verse of all of Old Testament religion is hear, O Israel, called the Shema because of that first word. Hear, listen, Shema, listen, O Israel, listen, people of God. The Lord our God is one. There's no other God, and that's what these, this scribe highlights. He says, oh, you're right to say there's no other God, that he's one. And I think there are two aspects to that meaning, to say he is echad, he is one. It's to say there's no division in him, no disintegration in him, no disconnect in him, no conflict in him. There's a oneness to him, an integrity to him, a soundness to him, but it's also to say the singularity of God is true. There's no other God. And if that's true, if we're thoroughgoing monotheists as Christians, just believe in one God, well, there's nothing in us, nothing in us that isn't in devotion to God. He is one God, and the great commandment flows from this affirmation of the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so love him. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If there's one God, well, we don't reserve any of who we are for any other idol or so-called God. He alone deserves all of who we are. And then it says, out of this love for God flows a love for others, flows a love for your neighbor. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do to you, the golden rule. 
Now, there's a movement today called the self-love movement, and there are elements of that that are accurate and true. God created us, every one of us, in his image for his glory, and every human being is knitted together, fearfully and wonderfully made, and worthy of profound dignity and value and respect. And understanding our sin before God is never a matter of self-loathing. It's a matter of recognizing a rebellion before God, but not in a way that puts us down but lifts him up and sees ourselves in relationship to him. And so we recognize the value of human beings. And I believe God has given each of us what I would call sanctified self-interest. Not at the exclusion of the interests of others, as Philippians 2 clearly says, but we don't just look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. I think the Bible assumes self-love. It doesn't command it and encourage it. It assumes it. It's built in. I wake up every day very concerned about my good. But the Bible's commanding us to turn that not just for, toward self, but toward others. And love others as you love yourself, as God assumes you do love yourself. Even if you have a low view of yourself, I think there's still a deep desire for your own good. And so we're to love others out of our love for God. Now, why is this? Why does this naturally translate this way? Well, because for years I thought about the great commandment as two commandments similar to one another because of the verb of the commandments. What, what's this? Jesus says the first commandment in the Matthew portion of this. He says love, the first commandment's li the second commandment's like the first one. These, these are like commands. And I always thought the likeness was just in the verb to love. But then I realized years ago that the reason the verbs are the same is because the objects of the verbs of the love are so similar. Human beings are made in God's image. And so if you love God, well, you then have to love those made in his image. And the Bible bases all of Christian ethics on this belief about human beings. We love God, so we then naturally love those made in his image. The ethical commands in the Old Testament, including capital punishment in Genesis 9, verse 6, say, do not destroy, do not murder, because when you do, you're destroying the very image of God. James says the way you use your tongue will reflect the way you view God because people are made in his image. And he says, please don't think that you can worship God with the same mouth that you curse people made in his image with. My brothers, this ought not to be so. And so we recognize this fundamental connection between loving God and loving people. He's saying, connect the, the vertical love for God to the horizontal love for people made in his image. That's why John says in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So the Christian is called to love for God, translated into love for others. So we better define love. We better know what we mean by this word, because this word is used constantly. Every pop song is about love. All you need is love. What's love got to do with it? Right? I could, I could stand up here and just recite songs about love and movies about love and ideas about love. One of the big phrases being used today is love is love. Which means love expressed the way I want it to, to whom I want it to be expressed, is all that matters. I decide what love is. 
And people will even use the expression God is love to give them permission to define love however they want. They start with a definition of love and then define God accordingly. Well, you can't flip it. God is love, and so we understand love in light of who God is, not the other way around. And so we recognize that, yes, indeed, God is love. We've got to define love. My wife is an incredibly loving person. I'm astounded at how loving my wife is. Not just the people she knows well and our kids and me and our church family, but strangers. I, I watch her just have love for strangers. She'll be driving in the car and see a man running down the road trying to get some exercise who looks like it's the first time he's ever done this. And she'll, I'll, I'll just watch her. She'll see him and she'll say, oh, sir, good for you. Oh, I'm so proud. He can't hear her. He might... But the windows are up, but she just can't help. She says, oh, I'm so proud of you. Keep it up. Your heart will thank you. She's just so happy for him. Doesn't even know him. He may be a scoundrel for all she knows, but she doesn't care. She loves this man, and she'll come home in tears sometimes. I'll say, what's wrong? And she said, she'll just say, I was just in the supermarket. Why are people so mean to each other? They're just in traffic, everybody cutting everybody off, just angry. Why? Why? And if there's a phrase my wife uses, she will see something like that and she'll say, that's not love. That's not love. She'll, she'll just see, not thinking of the next person and she'll say, that's not love. We need to know what love is because we don't know naturally. We don't, we, we, we're taught that all the time. Just look within yourself, you'll find everything. No, the Bible says we need to have our senses of discernment trained to discern good from evil, to know what love is because we'll get it all twisted otherwise. You know, the Bible says not only do we not know the difference, eventually, if we don't learn the difference, we'll start calling evil good and good evil. We'll start calling what is loving unloving. And we'll start calling what is unloving loving. That's the culture we live in. People can be doing things that are loving from God's perspective, and they'll be called evil, intolerant, bigoted people. And people can be doing things God hates and called wonderful good people these days. We live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. We need to have our senses of discernment trained to know what love is. So what is love? Well, it's grounded in who God is. God is love. We find our definition of love in who God is, and he always has been love. Among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity, there's been a perfect love expressed and received. God did not await creation to be loving toward us. He always was. There was always, eternally, a seeking of the good of another. That's what love is. God is eternally and perfectly seeking the good of another, glorifying and loving one another in the persons of the Trinity, and then that love spills out in creation itself and in the way God loves us by simply creating us and then loves us in redeeming us. The love of God is found in the eternal, unchanging nature of God, which means all of his other attributes are always perfectly intersecting with his attributes. Now, love couldn't be more important than it is in the Bible. But I think it's really important to realize that that's not somehow the supreme quality of God. To say God is love is not to say everything there is to say about God. It is to say it permeates everything about God. So that means his justice is loving justice and his wrath is loving wrath and his truth is loving truth and vice versa, right? His love is wrathful love and his holiness permeates his love as well. 
A lot of people know the Bible says God is love, but how many people know that when John writes that in 1 John 4, in 1 John chapter 1, he had already written God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all, which means his love is perfectly true and pure and holy love. This is not to devalue love, but do you know as the church is being established in the book of Acts and the preaching of the gospel goes forth and the lives of the disciples are on display, that the word love is never used in the entire book of Acts? Now, 1 John makes up for that all by itself. But it's just to put it in perspective. It, to say God is love is not to say everything there is to say about God, but his love is grounded in his eternal, unchanging nature. His infinite, self-sufficient, self-existent, independent nature. He doesn't need anything. And that's very important to realize. When you think about love for God, and then when it's best in human beings, it's not need-based love. We've got a weird understanding of love that comes primarily not from the Bible, but from R&B music. This idea and other kinds of music that the best kind of love is desperate, needy love. Baby, I can't live without you kind of love. Let me, I listened to a lot of Barry White and other R&B music when I was growing up as a kid. Listen to these lyrics from Barry White, a Barry White R&B song. As he sings to his woman these words, You're my first, my last, my everything, and the answer to all my dreams. You're my sun, my moon, my guiding star, my kind of wonderful, that's what you are. You're all I'm living for. Your love I'll keep forevermore. You're the first, you're the last, my everything. Till the day I die, you're my reality. Yet I'm lost in a dream. You're my first, my last, my everything. We hear that and we say, now that is love. That's the kind of love I want. No, it isn't. I promise you, that sounds like it's so wonderful for someone to consider you their reality. Ladies, if any man ever talks to you or sings to you that way, don't find it affirming. Run as fast as you can in the other direction. You were never created to be anyone's reality, anyone's first, last, and everything. God alone is that. It's actually blasphemous to sing to a mere creature that way. Please don't think needy, dependent love is the best kind of love. It's not. God has never loved that way once. And that's great news. And here's the amazing thing. When we receive the love of God in Christ, when the Holy Spirit pours the love of God into our hearts, an amazing thing happens. We can start to love other people the way God has loved us. The Bible says we love because he first loved us. And when we truly realize that, and the more we realize that, the more we will be free not to love so our needs are met, but love out of overflow, the excess of the love in our hearts that God has given us through Christ and by the Spirit's enabling. We get to love that way too. And you know how you know when you're loving that way? When your love is not appreciated when it's not even acknowledged, when it's not reciprocated, then how do you respond? Fine. See if I were put myself out there again. Or do you keep loving? Because that's how God loved us. Not because we loved him, but he, he initiated it. He didn't do it to get his needs met. And that's wonderful news. So this love that we have for God is a response to his love for us. And this love we have for others is a filling of his love that spills out into our lives toward other people. That's great news. And we need to realize 
that the ultimate historical display of the love of God in all of human history is God sending his son in our place. Listen to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we showed ourselves to be lovable or worthy or having earned anything, but when we were still sinners, when we were still God-haters, he sent his son because he loves us in this inexhaustible supply of his love. That's love. Christ for us. Now why? What is it about this love that's supreme and ultimate love? Well, it gives the greatest possible sacrifice. Do you know you can give without loving? I actually do it all the time. It's not out of love. It's out of obligation, duty, wanting people to think I'm something. You can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. Love is a giving thing. It's, it's an expressed thing. It's an overflow thing. It's a self-sacrificial thing. You know how many times the Bible describes love fundamentally as giving? Greater love is known than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how only not also with him graciously give us all things. Love is self-sacrificial. It's not just good intentions. It's an overflow in self-sacrificial ways that meets the greatest needs of those we love. I love stupidly a lot. You know that? I really do want to love. I may even have the resources to love, but I don't know what is the wisest way to love. And sometimes I can make things worse in my efforts to love because I wasn't meeting the needs of the individuals I was seeking to love. That's why we need wisdom. I remember a student came to me once and he said, Eric, I'm so ticked at my housemates. I said, why? And he said, well, it's final exam week, and they're all stressed. And I said, I know what I'll do. I'm going to come home, and I'm going to say, hey, guys, I'm going to take us all out for pie on me. Let's go. And they said, Randy, we don't need pie. We need a study. And he was crestfallen that they didn't appreciate how loving he was. And I said, Randy, they didn't need pie. They needed something else. Maybe if you brought them pie. It would have solved the problem. See, we need to care what people care about and what they need. We need to care about their deepest needs. And so we seek to meet their needs motivated by the greatest motive, which is the glory of God and the good of others. You see, God gives his son, and when we realize that love for us, we love because he first loved us. We love him. And when you really understand the love of God, the only response is to love him. You know the expression, to know him is to love him? That's often not true with humans, <laughs> but it's always true with God. It's always true with God. Jesus goes to the cross and saves us for the glory of God. He says, I've glorified your name and will glorify it again as he goes to the cross. And love leads to joy, not just for those we seek joy for, but for ourselves. I have a friend, and Tom is an amazingly loving guy. And I'll never forget sometime I said, man, Tom is awesome, isn't he? And a friend of mine said, he is. Do you know what is, is true about Tom? He said he considers the good of another as if it were his own. I thought how true that was. And that's so what love is, isn't it? When something wonderful happens to someone else, there, there isn't this competition or envy, this, this not liking. The, no, you, you celebrate that good as if it were your own good. 
just a beautiful display of what God's love is like when it is, as 1 John 4 says, made complete in us. How awesome is that? That the love of God expressed through Christ takes root in our hearts by the Spirit's work and it's made complete. It reaches its telos, its goal, its destination in the way we love. What an amazing privilege to be able to do this as his children. His love is made complete in us. Listen to John Owen. We are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement at his unspeakable love. That's when we're near Christ, when we know how amazingly loved we are by him. I am so grateful for the people in my life who have shown an amazing example of people who really understand how loved they are, so they love like God does. And I can think of no more evident example in my life these days than our dear friends, Brian and Amy Shaw. We got to know Brian and Amy many years ago when we were at Wheaton College together with Amy. And then she married Brian, and they had four children, and then they adopted six more children, all kids with disabilities. And, and this is a photograph of the Shaw family, an amazing family. And Amy... Every time she would go to pick up one of the kids that they would adopt, all who had significant disabilities, uh, she would come back with eight or ten photographs and bios of kids in the orphanage for kids with disabilities in whatever country she had just gotten back from. And she'd put them one at a time on her Facebook page and basically say to her thousands of Facebook friends, well, who's taking this boy or this girl? And every one of those kids has been adopted. And one of them became our son Isaac. When Donna saw Isaac's photograph when he was just a six-year-old boy in an orphanage for kids with disabilities in China. And she just came to me and said, what do you think? And I said, let's do it. Well, Brian and Amy are this incredible example to us. But a few years ago, Brian was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he's been battling brain cancer for years now. And it's gotten to the point where it's clear that Brian's dying. And he doesn't have much longer. And as they've gone through this trial, I haven't heard any self-pity. I haven't heard anything from them that has, is focused on themselves. But there's this desire to glorify God in continuing to love. And one of their biggest concerns when they found out that Brian was dying, Brian was grieving the fact that his girls were not going to have their dad to walk them down the aisle on their wedding day. And so last week, they had wedding day walk, wedding walk day. And, and they, they had a time where Brian, one at a time, starting with his oldest daughter, walked his daughters down the aisle of their church that had been decorated by dear friends. And this is a photograph of, of Brian and the girls. After he had walked them down the aisle, one at a time, and Amy met them at the end of the aisle and prayed for each girl for her life and for her husband one day and for her life. Let me just read to you a little of what Amy says about this glorious time. She says, on so uh, Saturday, February 27th, just five days after a marathon ER hopping day, we went to the church. Brian donned a gorgeous tuxedo and each daughter in wedding gowns and veils. Precious friends had decorated the church aisles. More friends volunteered their time and skills to photograph. Jensie wore my wedding gown. And Annalie wore my mom's from 53 years ago. 
They looked amazing. A wonderful ministry called Beauty Comes From Heart, as well as our sweet friends, furnished her other needs of tuxedos and dresses and shoes. As the music started, each daughter was lovingly walked down the aisle. Brian lifted each veil and whispered love into their ears. I joined them at the aisle's end, and he prayed long and hard for each one, for their future, for their husband, and listen to this, for them to radiate Christ into the world. It was glorious. Who loves this way? You know, I actually hesitate to use dramatic, beautiful, powerful, big examples like this because it can make us feel like losers. You know, as I'm thinking, I just have a hard enough time being patient trying to get my kid to watch the Zoom class he's on. But what I want you to realize about Brian and Amy, if they were here, they would say, we're just doing what God has done for us. And knowing Christ and making him known in the lives of their children is what they're living for. They want more than anything else that their kids will radiate Christ to the world. And that's what it's all about. What does it mean to love God and love others? Whatever God has given you in your life, that's on your plate and the people and the relationships that you so receive the love of God that he has for you in Christ that it becomes an overflow to people in your life. What a joy, what a thrill, what an adventure to be able to live a life that's so different than just what earthlings do. Those redeemed by God, by the blood of Jesus, can live so differently than we would otherwise. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are challenged and encouraged and blessed and moved by examples like Brian and Amy and their precious 10 children. But Lord, each of us has a wonderful privilege of trusting Christ and turning from our sin and finding who we are in your love for us. And Lord, when we do, I pray that we would increasingly, right starting today with the relationships we have, right in our homes and in this church, and in our neighborhoods, and at our jobs, and wherever you have us, Lord, that we would learn more and more how much you love us. And because you first loved us, we would love others the way you've loved us. Lord, I pray for Brian and Amy in these deep waters they're walking through these days, that you'd encourage and bless them, and that their example would inspire us and all who know them, and that we would know Christ and make him known in the way we love you and love others. And we pray this in his mighty and matchless name.